Good morning. Lucas, thank you. I love that man. He is one of our students, and he is, uh, he's a great model of what we're trying to create at the seminary. Godly, humble, sharp. So thank you, Lucas, for leading us in the reading of the word. You have your Bibles. I hope they're already open to John 17. Unlike last week, I will be using a version that is in front of you, the English Standard Version. I did not make up my own translation of the text for you today. I'm not that smart. John 17. It is great to be with you. I uh, get to preach at a lot of different places, and some places feel a bit more like home than others, and this is a place that feels a bit more like home. Uh, I love Josh Vincent and what God has done in and through him at this church, and uh, many of you I count as friends, and I'm sure if I got to know the rest of you, I'd count you as friends as well. I'm thankful for this church as I think about what God is doing in and through Phoenix, I think Trinity Bible Church is a rock-solid church where the gospel is proclaimed, sung, believed, cherished among the saints here. So thank you for allowing me to be with you. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what great things we've already been able to sing this morning. Thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for saving us, for bearing your wrath. That in eternity past, there was a plan amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save a people. And we are those people gathered together now to sing in glorious praise that Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life is our Savior and our sins are covered Father, now as we look at this word, as we hear the voice of your son praying in the garden those 2,000 years ago, I pray that through the power of your spirit, these words will come alive. If your spirit doesn't meet us this morning, we have met in vain. But we believe that if the spirit, through this prayer of your son, penetrates our hearts, we can leave changed. We pray that you come and do that amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. Jesus is at prayer in John chapter 17. And if you are like me, you've probably found prayer to be sometimes an unnatural thing. It's not the easiest thing. You would think it would be for somebody who's been born again by God to go to God in prayer. And yet, if you really want to make Christians feel a little bad about themselves and their walk with God, you talk about things like giving, evangelism, and prayer. Three things we know we should be doing, and yet sometimes find those things quite difficult. But if you find yourself not knowing what to say, you should take heart. Because even the disciples, the followers of Jesus, didn't know what to pray. And maybe you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to teach them, how should you pray? When I was in college, I was able to lead a Bible study with Campus Crusade for Christ, and one week we were nearing the end of our time together, and we were taking prayer requests as we often would, and I just prayed as I would pray for the people who asked for prayer requests, and a a student pulled me aside afterwards. He uh, was from Ethiopia, and he said, you know, I need to rebuke you right now. I said, okay, what, what, what did I do? I'm sure I did something wrong, but tell me what it is. And, and he said, when you pray, you only pray the Lord's Prayer. 
That's it. You should never pray anything else besides our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I can remember even thinking then, well, that doesn't seem right. Because in John 17, we have a prayer from Jesus where he didn't just pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What we have in John 17 is an actual prayer from Jesus. And so we get to learn even more, not only how to pray, but what Jesus even prayed. And if we're honest, I, I want to admit how strange I think this is up front. Jesus did some really strange things in his ministry. Uh, for instance, he taught in parables. A lot of times we say, isn't that cute? Jesus told these really fun stories, and we should tell neat stories to get people to understand what's happening in Scripture. But do you remember in, in Matthew 13 why he taught in parables? Seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear. That's a strange thing. We think when Jesus is speaking, it should always be really clear, and yet he taught in parables for obfuscation. We, we see him healing people or people coming to follow him, and then they say, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell everybody. And he says, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. And we think, well, that's strange. We don't expect Jesus to do that. Uh, at one point, the guy is blind, and he takes a clump of dirt and spits on it, and he puts it on his eyes, and he's like, that, that's a strange thing. But I think one of the strangest things that we see Jesus do in Scripture is to pray. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, God made man, never surrendered his deity because deity can't be surrendered. He's fully God, and yet here he is, eyes turned heavenward, praying. We even read in Mark chapter 1 that when it was early in the morning, Jesus got up and prayed. How often he would go out with his disciples to pray. He would break bread and he would pray. God in the flesh praying. If Jesus is a prayer, prayerful person, how much more should we be prayerful people? And what makes this prayer even more remarkable how, is how centered it is on his mission. He's in the face of certain death, a torturous death, and he's focused on his people to forgive them of sin, to give them eternal life. John 17 is often called this high priestly prayer. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. He's going to go to Calvary just about 12 hours from now. And I want to remind you, I want to set this scene about what's happening. Matthew, Mark, and Luke can tell a story a lot of times very similar, and John throws in pieces that we don't see in those other Gospels, and that's what we have. In the other Gospels, you'll remember that Jesus uh, has just had the Last Supper, that he's now reinterpreting as the Lord's Supper. He took the Passover, and he's explaining how this is now his body, this is his blood, do this in remembrance of me. And then they do something quite remarkable, they sing a hymn. If you can insert yourself in time in almost any place, any time, that might be one of the coolest places to go is into the upper room and watch Jesus as he's interpreting this ancient ritual in a new way and then they sing together. It would have been a glorious thing to hear the Lord Jesus Christ singing this hymn. And then they depart from the upper room and they go to prayer. They go to the Mount of Olives, and they're, they're going to pray. And Jesus says to his friends, hey, I need you right now. This is a really tough time for me. Would you pray with me? Sure, Jesus, we'll pray with you. And he leaves them, and he goes on a little further, and he sets down to pray. And he comes back, and they're snoring. They're asleep. He says, I need you right now. Pray with me. Can, can you pray with me? And he goes back and he prays and he comes back and they're asleep and we get that line that the spirit is willing but 
the flesh is weak. Spurgeon once said, no, no man can do a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. There's nothing greater than to have someone pray for you. There's nothing worse than to have someone pray for you and then to fall asleep on that request. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this many times over. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Followed by silence might be the greatest act of betrayal we can commit as a believer. And that's what the disciples are doing. Jesus will pray for you and then they fall asleep. We will never know the side of heaven how many requests to the Father go unanswered because those who promised are unfaithful in prayer. How many diseases unhealed? How many marriages unreconciled? How many financial crises unsolved? How many hopes unfulfilled? All because of empty promises to pray. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep like the disciples do, leaving Jesus to go on alone. Engage in prayer. Jesus still prays for his friends. Josh mentioned this in his prayer. Jesus is still praying for us. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Not only do we have a recorded prayer right here in the Gospel of John, but we also know from 1 Timothy 2, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is forever interceding on our behalf. What a glorious promise in Scripture. And that's what we see in this passage, Jesus praying for us. The prayer itself is split up into three sections. Maybe you could kind of hear those distinctions as Lucas read it. In verses one through five, he is praying that the glory that he set aside at the incarnation would be restored to him. Remember this, Jesus Christ left heaven, left the ceaseless praise that was given to him all to come down, and in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, to be born in a tumble-down stable. Left the glory of heaven to come in the appearance and likeness of man. And now he's saying, Father, I've done it. The, the mission you've sent me to accomplish, I'm gonna go to the cross, I'm accomplishing the mission, and now glorify me again. It's a great and proper thing for him as God to pray. In verses six through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, and I wanna focus in on that section in just a minute, reminding ourselves that because this is God's word, even though Jesus was applying that in that immediate context to, to his 12 followers, he is applying it to us today as well. And then in verses 20 and what follows to the end of the chapter, it's a remarkable thing that he does. He prays for you. He prays for me. He looks down the corridors of history and he prays for all the people who will ever follow him throughout time. And what does he pray for us? Unity. Unity. It's a foretaste of the prayers that would be going on forever. Feel the weight of this. Jesus is about to go to the cross just as the anxiety is about to build and the capillaries on his head will burst and blood will run down his brow. You are on his heart. He's praying for you. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. He's praying for you. And he's praying for unity. And I think it would take very little power of observation to realize how much we need unity in the body of Christ today. We could easily spend a sermon or a, a series of sermons going over what does unity in the body of Christ look like today? I'll leave that to Josh to do another time, or maybe he's already done it. It's an important thing to pray for unity. But what I wanna focus in on is in that middle section, verses 13 through 19. 
Jesus presenting our need to God. Soon will be the sacrificial lamb. And I want to observe how Jesus prays it will be centered in his word. It's very interesting. In these couple verses here, Jesus is focused on how the word is going to be our mainstay. So the first thing from verse 13 is that the word is for joy. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. One of the biggest lies of the devil, and one of the worst things you could hear today as we move on, is that doing the word, living the word, setting yourself apart from the world is a chore. I think one of the greatest lies in culture today as it comes to Christianity is following Jesus is a boring, horrible, lame kind of existence. Instead of the joy. Jesus says, you follow me, you know joy. Happiness. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And yet everything in culture says if you live like that, you're living a life without joy. It's the complete opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus wants the things that he's spoken here to produce a harvest of joy in the lives of believers. Truth is joy. Obedience is joy. Sanctification is joy. And when persecution comes, as Jesus will talk about, remember the wellspring of joy that comes through hearing and responding to the words of Christ in faith. Notice what he says here. He's specifically speaking to the things that he said. And these things I speak that they may have joy. Have joy in the things that I've spoken. I think part of that is in the prayer that he's already been praying. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That should bring us joy. Eternal life is to know God. It's not I have to do all these things and keep all these commands and I've got to be better than everyone else in order to get to heaven. We have great joy knowing that it's been done for us on our behalf by Christ. To know him is eternal life. Verse nine, I am praying for them. Who else in all the world says the God of the universe who created me is praying for me? He's for me. When I don't know what to pray, the spirit intercedes on my behalf, crying out, Abba, Father. God prays for us. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. God glorified in his people. There's not a separation. There is the creator creature thing, but but the the creator himself says, I'm gonna come and live inside the creature. I'm gonna indwell them by the power of the Holy Spirit and be glorified in my people. That should bring us great joy. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Those who belong to Christ belong to him forever. Those who have passed from death to life, those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light are his forever and he guards you. As Paul says in Colossians, you're now with Christ in God. Shouldn't that bring you great joy? What can snatch you out of his hand? What can take you away? What can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. That should bring us incredible joy, these things that have been spoken to us. And I think it's things that exist even outside of this prayer. It's all the things Jesus has said. It's the time that Jesus shows up at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. Jesus, if you had been here, if you had come, our friend wouldn't be dead. 
And Jesus says, watch this. And he raises him up to life again. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who, comes, he, he who belongs to me will never die. Well, there should be great joy in that. In a culture filled with fear of death, I looked last night at the CDC's map of the spread of the coronavirus. Looks like it's going to get pretty well everywhere. If you're in Christ, you've already died. You're already risen. You're already seated in the heavenlies. What do we have to fear? And because we don't have to fear death like the rest of the world, there's no sting in death. We can have the joy of Christ. He is the good shepherd. I mean, on and on we can go and and look at all the things that Jesus said that should just spark such wonderful joy in our hearts. This, This hope of life that comes from Jesus alone, even when joy feels so far, even when it feels like the suffering is too strong, we can remember the words of Jesus and, and have joy. One of the things that keeps me close to Jesus when suffering comes is John 6. You remember Jesus is teaching and a lot of people are walking away from him. Remind yourself, that's what's going to be the, the result. Most people will walk away. And they walk away and Jesus turns back to his disciples. And he says, are you going to go too? And they say, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And in that, there's great joy. These words of eternal life should burn in our hearts. Give us joy and courage to stand apart in a world that is full of the words of death. And notice that Jesus immediately then turns to persecution. Secondly, then, the word is hated by the world. Verse 14 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The word is what separates us from the world. Because we have the word, the world hates us, because it is the very nature of the word to make us distinct from the world. It's the light, and darkness hates the light. This is one of the biggest apologetics for the faith that keeps me tethered to Christ. People hate us. Think about this. People hate us because we tell them God loves you. God loves you so much. You know there's something wrong with you. You know that thing we call it sin, and you know it in your life. It's there. But God loves you so much that he would send his own son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, to die on the cross for your sins. All you got to do is believe and reach out by faith and accept what God has done for you. And what's the response? Closed countries, worldwide persecution throughout all time, red-faced anger, and a pushing of Christians to the periphery of society. Jesus loves you. The response I'm going to kill you. You can kill me, but I love you, and so does God. And Christians are burned at the stake, shot in the head, hung on crosses, sawn in two, sewn up in the skins of animals, killed by lions. We do it because we belong to another world. 
and the joy that we have in us from the word of God can't be contained, must spill over, and when it does, it's met by darkness, and darkness wants to snuff out the light, and it should not surprise us. Why would we expect anything different? Just two chapters earlier in John 15, Jesus promised, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's a promise. And here he prays that we would be left in the world, but that we would not be of the world. Jesus doesn't promise that when you come to him, things will be all peachy. There's a prosperity gospel going out to thousands of people saying, if you're in Christ, life is great. And yet as I read scripture, a lot of times it's the exact opposite of that. I'm gonna call the apostle Paul to be my agent to the Gentiles and I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. We don't, we don't include that a lot in our, our evangelism calls, do we? Come to Jesus where suffering abounds. Persecution will come. There's a promise. 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Come down, my friend. The buses will wait. And yet it's a promise of scripture. But Christ is worth it. Any persecution that comes, we're going to be left in the world. He does not promise to pull us out when things get tough. In fact, it's in the toughest of times that Christianity is at its best. Ignatius of Antioch, writing just after the death of the apostles, said this, Christianity is greatest when it's hated by the world. To which I want to add the flip side of that. Christianity is lamest when it's indistinguishable from the world. We must wrestle with what it means to be in the world, not of the world. Maybe one reason you would say that you've never received even a modicum of persecution is because your life looks no different than a lost person's. Jesus is clear. The world should see us as foreign citizens, even though we find ourselves still in the world. I uh, would love to travel the world. I've not had much of that opportunity. I've spent very little time out of the U.S. I've been on two cruises when I was a kid to the Caribbean, and that hardly counts. And then I spent about 12 hours in Canada just two years ago. I survived. I'm here to tell my tale. It was striking to me. I mean, the first thing that really got my attention was there was no American flag flying. I would go places and see the Canadian flag, and I thought, well, that's weird. Uh, the red, white, and blue looks a bit prettier. By the way, if you're Canadian and you're down here to enjoy our warmth right now, sorry. It just didn't seem right. And, and the, the thing that really struck me the most is how everyone wanted me to be an apologist of America. They would say, why do you Americans do this? Why do you Americans do that? I got in the country, I'm not even kidding you, it was after midnight and I left by noon the next day and I probably had 30 people ask me, to take stances on American policy kind of related issues. It's amazing how many people wanted to converse with me because I was an American. It should be 10 times that because I'm a Christian. A citizen of another world should be looked at by citizens of this world and people say, why are you living like this life is only preparation for another life? I mean, the, the world today says you, you only live once, you better live it out, you better live to your max, do what you wanna do, live for pleasure, and Christians should be the ones saying, no, 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 
This life is brief. Eternal life is long. Faithfulness is what matters. And it should look totally different. People should see so much of a difference and inquire why we have this hope. You're not Canadian, are you, eh? No. No. You're not of this world, are you? No. I live for another life in another world. But the problem is I can so often look like everyone else. I can blend in. I can love the things the world loves. I can laugh at what the things the world laughs at. I can be easily offended as the world is, which erupts over the smallest things. And I cannot love the things that God loves. James rebukes us for this level of flirtation with the world. In James 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can live for the world. We can live for God. We can't live for both. We simply cannot be of this world. Jesus was not of the world, neither are his followers. That's his point here. God, just as I was not in the world, they're not gonna be of the world. The world's gonna hate them because they have the word, which makes them distinct from the world. So, So why do we act like the world, talk like the world, think like the world, value what the world values? We have the words of life. They follow the words of death. We're on the narrow road to eternal life. They're on the broad road of destruction. They hear the word and trample it underfoot. We hear the word and it produces fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. We should be the aroma of life. We should be the light of the world, the salt that preserves and flavors the city on a hill. All those things Jesus is saying to show just how distinct we should be. And if you find that hard, the times are coming when it will not be as hard. We're moving into a kind of third cultural moment Not even back to paganism, but to post-Christianity. And in a post-Christian world, the Christian values that used to, even 20 years ago, people would say, yes, that's moral, are now things that people will specifically say it's immoral. To hold a biblical sexual ethic will be immoral, is becoming immoral in this world. You want to stand out? The world will call you immoral. And yet we hold fast to Christ Ultimately, the question then is, is one of truth. If the word is for our joy and we want to follow it for joy, and the word hates the word, the world hates the word, which I think is because it's truth, then the word ultimately should be for our sanctification, which is where Jesus goes in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Pilate asked Jesus in the next chapter of Jesus' trial, what is truth? What is truth? You say you're truth. What, what does that even mean? It's a pervasive question of our day. Truth seems to have many, as many facets as there are faces on the earth. You've heard this all. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We can all have truth. That is absurd. Jesus couldn't be clear about the existence of absolute truth, capital T, truth, truth of truths. One story which explains reality. Not many truths. We live in a potpourri world, and much of this stems from postmodernism. Uh, the, the, one of the founders and, and 
thinkers of that movement, Francois Leotard, defined it as the incredulity of the meta-narrative, which simply means it's a disbelief that there's one story which explains all the stories. So Christianity can no longer have a truth claim that says, this is true for all people, all times, all places, around the world. There can be truths in their pocket of society and our truths, and those truths are, have equal claim to validity. The very idea, though, of truth is exclusionary. For this to be true, this must be false. And yet people today would have us believe that we can have different contradictory truths and have equal claim on reality, and it's hard to take these people seriously. How absurd it is on the face. Again, these are apologetics for Christianity. When things are so obviously against each other, people say, yeah, that seems right. It should remind us that the enemy is one of confusion One way Christians will stand out, especially as the days grow darker, is our claim to have ultimate truth. That's all it will take. At your office, at your your classrooms, wherever God takes you out into the world to be in the world, not of the world, you claim to have absolute truth, you will have people who will not like that. If there's one verse that I think, this, this is kind of my verse in many ways. It's not really a life verse because it doesn't go so hot on a t-shirt, but it is a great verse for, for understanding where we're at in this world and where you better be able to put your stake. Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God gets to define reality and declare what is true. And even if every other person on the planet declares the Bible false and Jesus Christ a false prophet, let them be a liar, let God be true. Are you ready to stand against a massive cultural storm saying, God is true, this is false, when everyone says you've lost your mind? The world will persecute for that. I'm often reminded of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards One of which is, I will follow God, even if no one else does, I still will. And in this passage, Jesus prays for our sanctification in truth. We are only sanctified to the level that we are in the truth. Sanctification is made up of two ideas, grounded in becoming holy. First, sanctification is progressive. We should always be growing in our faith and holiness, One major way to do this is to be grounded in the word. I've never met a mature believer who doesn't know the Bible well. These go hand in hand. If there's one thing specifically I said, I would say this brings someone to Christian maturity. It's it's swimming in the ocean of God's word every day for the rest of your life. Spurgeon used to say, uh, a, a, a person whose Bible, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person whose life isn't. The Bible's falling apart. Chances are the life is together because you're so connected in to Christ. And make no mistake about it, to stall is to slip. When we talk about sanctification as progressive, you're you're moving in, you're pressing in, you're going into the things of God, or you're falling back from those things. It's not like, hey, I did that sanctification thing five years ago, and I'm kind of plateaued, and life is great, and I'm just gonna kind of chill here for a little bit. You're moving in or you're moving back. So this morning, are you moving in or are you moving back? Is your life more sanctified today than it was five years ago 
or not? And the question of all questions is, you are a liar to yourself. Find someone close to you. Do you look more like Jesus or not? And do you have the courage to ask that question today of somebody? Second, but really first in order, sanctification is positional. So it's progressive. We move on into it but it's positional. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're not only justified, God declares us righteous in his sight, but we're made holy before God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. He lived a perfect life so we could transfer that righteousness to us. We transferred our sins to him on the cross. He transfers his righteousness to us through justification, through the imputation of his righteousness so that we could be sanctified in him. That's, that's what I think he's meaning even in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. In the Greek, the phrase, is, the phrase I consecrate myself is actually I sanctify myself. I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. To be sanctified in truth is first of all to be positioned in Christ because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So to be sanctified in truth is to be in Christ. Let me tie these ideas from these verses together for us. To be sanctified in truth is to know the joy of Christ because our joy is connected to how close we stick to his word. Freedom is not the autonomy to do whatever I want. That's bondage to the flesh because our bent is towards worldliness and this is what Jesus is calling us out away from. Freedom is nearness to the word of Christ pursuing sanctification. So here we go. Bondage to Christ is sanctification, and sanctification is freedom, and freedom is joy. And this sanctification comes through the word, and we will be persecuted because we hold to an otherworldly truth. So that's how I think Jesus ties these ideas together, centered in the reality of his word, which brings us joy, which brings us persecution, but will ultimately sanctify us. I want to end then with just a few questions. Where do you find your joy? Do you find it in the word? Do you find it in the person of Christ? Do you find it in the community of believers? Or do you find it in the world? Do you find it on the never-ending scroll of Facebook? Do you find it in the never-ending binge of Netflix? Do you find it in the things of the world? Do you find it in Christ. Are you growing in truth? Are you noticeably different in this world? Are you standing out and apart from this world? Do you resemble Christ? The word is our joy and our sanctification, but let's not make any mistake about it. It's gonna cost us to hold that in our day. Let's pray.